This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. Most of our patients are not undergoing screening uh, for the presence of Barrett's, um, even though it is recommended by a number of GI societies. Um, so that led me to think as to how can we make screening more accessible? How can we make it less expensive? And how can we have more patients participate in, in Barrett screening? Welcome to Gastro Broadcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Prasad Iyer of the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Prasad Iyer specializes in gastroenterology and hepatology and has spoken about the diagnosis and treatment of Barrett's esophagus, esophageal cancer prevention, and newer methodologies used in the prevention of cancer. In addition to his clinical activities, Dr. Iyer is active in research and education, providing mentorship to residents and subspecialty fellows. Dr. Iyer, welcome to Gastro Broadcast. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's great. I, I know I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, I have a tech engineering background, so new devices always uh, interest me a lot. Uh, but a little background about yourself. When did you go into medicine? When did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? And how did you choose gastroenterology? So this takes me back to my childhood. And um, I have to say, I'm the first person in my family to uh, choose medicine as a career. And um, I made the decision fairly early in my life. Um, so I grew up in, in India, where you traditionally will go into um, medicine right after high school. And um, you have to decide pretty much by 10th grade in terms of what is the field that you would want because that determines the subjects you study in your 11th and 12th grade which then allows you to take the entrance exams for gas uh, for uh, medicine so um, i think i was just intrigued by the biological sciences in general um, and i love biology i love chemistry and i thought medicine would be a good field to be in um, and I have to say, the last um, 30 years or so that I've been in medicine, I think I made the right decision. In terms of choosing gastroenterology, that decision obviously came a bit later. Um, and I think what attracted me to gastroenterology when I became an internal medicine resident was that it combines both the cognitive aspects of medicine and the procedural aspects of medicine. And um, I think relatively few specialties in medicine allow us to do that. Um, and I was fortunate to have some good GI faculty in during my residency um, in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And um, I felt this, this, would, this could be a field where I could um, suitably combine these two aspects and uh, help patients. So I think that's the reason I went into gastroenterology. 
Well, that's, uh, it's always interesting. Everybody comes at this from a different angle and different background. So you, you did your training in Milwaukee. Was there anybody in particular that you would point to as a mentor or uh, who advised you? And you got into esophagus, uh, the area of the esophagus. Who, who pushed you in that direction or who led you in that direction? Yeah, great, great question. So I have a number of mentors to to thank. Um, I would say in terms of getting into GI, some of the faculty I work with in Milwaukee, Wisconsin were um, Dr. Nimish Vakil, who was at the University of Wisconsin Hospital in, in, in uh, Milwaukee. Um, uh, Dr. Tom Pewitz, who was one of our, the senior fellows. Um, Dr. Abu Dafi, and um, I also have to name Dr. James Robinson, who was one of the private, private practice uh, gastroenterologists who used to practice in an inner city hospital. And I was also inspired by him as well. In terms of getting attracted to the esophagus, I have to thank um, my mentor, Dr. Kenneth Wang, who um, I spent a whole year during my second year of GI fellowship at Mayo Clinic. Um, really, um, and I think he's he's really the person who um, shaped the early part of my career in terms of choosing um, esophageal cancer and its precursors as the field where um, I fe- uh, I wanted to spend my academic career in, and who really inspired me to go into academic medicine. Um, and he, uh, it's bittersweet because this year he retired from Mayo Clinic um, and but I think that was one of the major uh, influences on my life in terms of staying in academics, um, advancing research and teaching um, and also providing good patient care. Well, that's He's certainly been an inspiration. I'm very involved with the AGA and he's been very involved with AGA for many years as mm-hmm. have other um, leaders at uh, Mayo Clinic for certain. Um, now, I know you've spoken uh, about the diagnosis and treatment of Barrett's esophagus and prevention of esophageal cancer. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the new technology that you've been working on? Yeah, thank you, Michael, for that question. Um, so very early on in my career, I realized that um, most patients with esophageal cancer unfortunately continue to present at a advanced stage. Um, Typically, when they have trouble with food sticking, they're losing weight. And at this time, the esophageal cancer is typically advanced. And um, unfortunately, despite all advances in medical care, the five-year survival of these patients is still 20% or less. there is only one new known precursor for esophageal adenocarcinoma, and that is Barrett's esophagus. And the other interesting and rather unfortunate uh, fact is that most patients with esophageal cancer continue to be diagnosed only after the onset of these uh, obstructive symptoms, um, even though they almost all of them arise in a background of Barrett's. And most of our patients are not undergoing screening uh, for the presence of Barrett's, um, even though it is recommended by a number of GI societies. Um, so that 
led me to think as to how can we make screening more accessible? How can we make it less expensive? And how can we have more patients participate in, in Barrett screening and more providers convinced to do Barrett screening? And that is how we undertook this journey of trying to come up with some minimally invasive alternatives to endoscopy, which is really the only widely utilized method of detecting Barrett's. Um, and the technology, so we started with, with unsedated transnasal endoscopy, which um, you may be aware is very popular in, in Europe as well as in the East. Um, and we conducted randomized controlled trials and for a variety of reasons, uh, unsedated transnasal endoscopy has not really um, taken root in the American population. So our next step was then to, to come up with or think of a strategy which perhaps takes this out of the hands of a gastroenterologist and could perhaps be done by a nurse or a tech in the office. Um, and uh, it was around, I would say, 10 to 12 years ago when this really low-tech device called the cytosponge was, was um, introduced into gastroenterology. So cytosponge is really a piece of polyurethane foam which is compressed inside a capsule and that is attached to a suture or a string. Patients swallow this with a few sips of water, the shell dissolves, it releases the piece of polyurethane foam, which is 25 to 30 millimeters, but compressible. You pull this out through the esophagus and the mouth, and you get a very rich cellular sample of the entire esophagus. Um, so um, the, the advantage is that you can use these cells for a variety of biomarkers. And that's where the molecular aspects of medicine which have uh, which you probably know has made a lot of progress can then be combined with this minimally invasive way of sampling the esophagus um, and that's what led us to our next journey of combining these devices which sample the esophagus with biomarkers so um there are similar tools available. There's, I know I've read a little bit about Cytosponge. Are there other, what are the other options that we should be looking out for? Maybe that are not quite as uh, far along as uh, the sponge. What other tools uh, are people reading about and seeing? Yeah, so th there are actually two other devices that are, that are available on the market. So there is one called the Esophacap which is a very similar device to the cytosponge. It's made in the United States. And there is another sampling device called the ESOCheck, which is actually a swallowable balloon, which is inflated um, inside the stomach, swallowed, inflated, pulled, pulled up into the esophagus and then deflated and then pulled out through the mouth. So there are these three devices that are available. Um, less invasive than that, is um, is a device which actually uses or uh, sorry analyzes exhaled volatile organic compounds. Um, it is called the E nose, um, as in the electronic nose, and it essentially um, 
uses artificial intelligence to quickly analyze the pattern of these exhaled volatile organic compounds uh, in a handheld device um, and is able to predict whether you have Barrett's or not um, when it gets trained on enough samples. So there have been, there's been one large paper that has been published uh, from Europe and um, we have been part of some trials uh, to further investigate the, the role of this device. So that's as least invasive as we have gone. Blood tests, unfortunately, have not shown to be, have not been shown to be very helpful for the detection of Barrett's, likely because it is a non-invasive, still metaplastic condition. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm in private practice. I'm in a relatively good-sized group. If I see this tool now being available, uh, how do you think this will change my practice pattern? What will I be doing differently? Yeah, so it, it depends on whether you are in a gastroenterology practice or a primary care practice. And I think if, so let me, let me track back a little bit. I think the primary role the primary site or location where these early detection technologies will likely be implemented would be, in my mind, in the primary care office, would be my sense. Because that's where most of these patients who are at risk for Barrett's esophagus are currently being, being seen. But unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, Barrett's screening is not being performed because um, either the provider is too busy or um, access to endoscopy is challenging. We know that. Um, patients don't want to go for a very invasive procedure, etc., etc. So I'm a gastroenterologist. I believe in the technology. I agree absolutely that we're in the esophageal cancer prevention business. Mm -hmm. We should be screening as many people as we can screen, and we should make it easy for people to be screened. Yeah. Uh, is this the kind of tool that we could set up as a direct access, direct access service for the primary care community? We'll put it at a location. Is that? Do you think that would work? I I think that would be that would be very reasonable in my opinion because really the the advantage of such a quote unquote center, if we can call it that, would be that whoever is doing the, the using this technology or administering the device would get really good at it. And um, it would be a quick procedure. And if we can centralize the analysis of the specimens, then we would be would really be hitting, you know, all the the, the data points that we want. So I, I yeah. think that would be totally fine in my mind whether it is of and, and even in primary care offices, I don't think that this would be done in every office. I think this would be in some ways centralized or um, sort of funneled into a certain office. So it could be a this freestanding center or it could be a certain office where all these patients are sent to. So I, I couldn't agree more. And then once the test is positive, then those patients who have a positive test would then be sent for endoscopy to confirm so, the diagnosis. So for screening, it would identify Barrett's patients. As you said, we would then proceed with an endoscopy to assess. 
How about for surveillance? Is is this tool going to be used for surveillance for the lower, for low risk, non-dysplastic patients? Great question, uh, Michael. And I think that's sort of the next um, frontier. Um, I think the Mayo Clinic group, as well as other groups in the United States and elsewhere have made a lot of progress in terms of validating biomarkers for Barrett's detection. The next frontier we have to cross is the use of biomarkers to identify dysplasia, which I think is the next step in these patients, right? So you screen and then you survey. And um, I think this is an area of active investigation. And I know our group and several other groups are actively looking at markers in different classes, which could then be analyzed off of samples, either from an endoscopic brush or the the cytosponge or the cap, to then uh, see if some of the endoscopies that we are doing, particularly maybe in these low risk patients with no dysplasia, can then be um, um, maybe supplemented or replaced by the um, a similar similar strategy. Yeah, I, I like that. It's very triple aim, you, you know, a better better care for the patient, less invasive. Yeah. Uh, better care for the community, identifying more people at risk, and lower cost. Um, that's uh, a, a big goal. I'm a very much a triple aim sort of person, so I really see the technology advancing uh, advancing our services. Absolutely. So, I want to ask you a, a clinical question because I was reading an article recently or about a study of how to treat Barrett's, mm-hmm. non-dysplastic Barrett's. We're not talking about, uh, uh, you know, eradicating it. We're talking about treating somebody who has a, a low risk. Um, do you p- promote using acid suppression with aspirin or without aspirin? That's the aspirin question. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's a great point. And um, I'm going to maybe answer your question in, in two parts. Um, so I think there is, we treat every patient with Barrett's, whether they have, well, once they have dysplasia, I guess the discussion is different. But if we just step back to non-dysplastic Barrett's, I think every patient has to be on some dose of a proton pump inhibitor, in my mind, to do two things. Number one, obviously to control their symptoms of reflux, which many of them will have, heal esophagitis. And then the second component is, can PPIs play a role in chemo prevention? And by chemo prevention, I mean reducing the risk of progressing to esophageal adenocarcinoma. And um, I think there is fairly strong non-randomized data which suggests that being on a proton pump inhibitor does seem to reduce your risk of progressing to high-grade dysplasia or cancer. Um, Unfortunately, the only randomized trial, which is the ASPECT trial, um, showed that you have to have high-dose PPI to really make uh, a dent in, in, in outcomes. Now, let's go to the role of aspirin. And that's where I think, unfortunately, things get a little murkier. Um, the evidence for primary prevention of esophageal adenocarcinoma in Barrett's with aspirin 
is unfortunately not very strong there are there are hints um in terms of observational non randomized studies um but we yet don't have that level 1 evidence um we also know that even cardiologists have stepped back from primary prevention of cardiovascular disease because the risk of even low dose aspirin causing gi bleeds bleeds um intracerebral bleeds seems to outweigh the benefits so what i have started doing in my practice is that i actually look for other cardiovascular risks uh risk factors in my patients and if they qualify for secondary prevention of um cardiovascular disease with aspirin and they have barrett's then i encourage combination of aspirin plus ppi i think that's that's great uh, it's always nice if they have a, a you know obviously aspirin can be a bit of a problem for some patients uh we as gastroenterologists we tend to see those you know we we get a lot of younger people listening to the podcast any advice you want to give to fellows or younger people uh, going uh, starting a gi career what advice would you give them what advice do you give them um i think it's a very um gratifying field um endoscopy has come a long way um since you know even the last 15 20 years where we really changed the paradigm of treating a lot of diseases which needed um surgeries like esophagectomy and brought them into the realm of endoscopic therapy so i think it's very gratifying to see patients um where we can prevent cancer we can treat cancer effectively using the endoscopic tools that we have so i love gastroenterology and it's regardless of whether you work in the esophagus whether you work in ibd whether you work in the liver um whether you work in the colon there are just or the pancreas for that matter so um i to me it's a perfect combination of cognitive medicine as well as procedural medicine so um i i would encourage um any aspiring um uh, internal medicine resident to seriously look at becoming a gastroenterologist i i think we need more of us not less um in terms of um what should they be doing during gi fellowship i i i think um we have to be good doctors first of all um i think we have to excel in clinical medicine um to me there is uh, you have to be a good clinician you have to be a good physician uh, identify disease and and treat it effectively so that's that's always step number 1 so enough clinical and and procedural exposure is critically important um beyond that it really depends on what interests you uh interests the provider i think um as someone who has had an aspect of research in my career um i feel that provides me with the opportunity to maybe impact more patients um than i could do with clinical practice alone so um if there is a driver to me um uh continuing my research career i think it's the ability to do that um and i i would i would encourage all trainees to explore a career in research um whether it be basic science whether it be clinical research just for that purpose uh the satisfaction and the gratification we get 
um, it may be delayed, but I think the impact can be wider uh, than than um, providing good clinical care, which is important too. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. It's a, I've enjoyed my career, you know, taking care of one patient at a time. But one of the things that gives me the most pleasure is speaking to groups and more physicians and hoping that I'm increasing the uh, outcome for thousands of patients. Absolutely. Uh, that is, that really uh, psychs me up. So I absolutely agree with you. Um, I really want to thank you, Dr. Iyer, for uh, joining me on Gastro Broadcast. Thank you so much, Michael. Love the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.